0: Are you registered to vote?
1: Uh, This will be, I'm 41 years old, and this is my first year. I'm actually going to vote and going to register.
2: They want to delay, demolish, they want to destroy. Radical policies are a danger to your family and to your country.
3: Politics. Usually, it's a passing thought, but with midterms looming, it has cast a shadow on everything all at once and all the time. Campaigns are a means to an end. Democracy at work? Some would even say. However, is this constant atmosphere of debate and division the best way to create a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? Today we're examining the gray area between government and its citizens, specifically the power each hold, or don't. What's the purpose of government, democracy, socialism, communism? Which system best benefits its citizens? It's important to zoom out of the headlines and focus on the express purpose of not simply candidates, but our system of governance as a whole, because regardless of who you believe runs America, we the people are in crisis.
1: We invited two voices to join our discussion this episode. One person we interviewed to gain insight into this topic is Aaron Dusso, Chair of Political Science and Associate Professor of Political Science here at IUPUI. CESO teaches a variety of subjects at IUPUI, including Intro to American Politics, Voting Campaigns and Elections, Research Methods, and Political Psychology. We also have Ahmed Abbas with us for group discussion portions. Ahmed is a part of the Social Justice Scholars Program that presents programs like Hash It Out to our campus. Listen for both of their
3: voices. Government. The governing body of a nation, state, or community. The definition is easy to find, but when people try to articulate the purpose of government and implement a nation's stated ideals such as those written in the United States Constitution, that's when the struggle begins.
0: Welcome back to Hash It Out. We're here with Anna, Elizabeth, Tia, and please introduce yourself.
4: Hi, hi. great to be here. Uh, My name is uh, Ahmed Abbas, Uh, I'm a junior at IUPUI. I study international uh, relations, and I'm really excited to talk about some ideas you never get to talk about. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right, so first question, let's do the basics, like what's the purpose of government? Like what have we been taught that government's role is in our lives?
4: Um, you know, I think when you look at the purpose of government, I think there's a very philosophical answer to it. Um, I believe that you know, the, the role of the government is to help actualize the aspirations of its people. You know, it's a fundamental right, you know, it's to be able to protect those fundamental rights, the idea that by default of being a human being, you deserve to live with some dignity, you deserve to have a house, you deserve to have employment, you deserve to be able you know, to take public transportation to different places, you deserve to eat, you, know, you deserve to have clean water, clean air. Um, so the government's role is to make sure that those things are facilitated for the people. Uh, if not, then what is it? You know, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, ty- it's a tyranny. Um, and I feel as if the most important part to me about this is does government really, does a government, I guess, in particular, is it able um, to take away the roadblocks? that are preventing people from experiencing these things, experiencing din- dignity, experiencing what it means to be a human being. And for me, those are roadblocks, if you want to visualize it, think of a seawall that's blocking waves of change. Uh, those seawalls are queerphobia, you know, racism, xenophobia, patriarchy, all those things. Those things block the wave of change from coming and dismantling the oppressive structure, and in its destruction will come something I believe to be very beautiful. The role of government is to facilitate the destruction of those barriers and allow the tide of change to take its rightful place.
1: Mm. see I immediately when hearing that sentence went to what is the practical application of government right now and my first instinct is to control people
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way
1: because I think that what Ahmed said is what we need government to be mm-hmm. but the role mm-hmm. that government is playing actively in our lives in this room mm. is a role of control mm.
4: yeah. it's, just, it's brutal and it's-, yeah, it's
1: all encompassing in all
0: aspects of our lives I think the the power of government is very subtle and it's yeah. so we're in the midterm elections right now and the wave of like grassroots or whatever mm-hmm. people want to call it of speaking out against what we don't like about government has been amplified because people see what the government is really mm-hmm. and it's very not like in the background of society you know like we have to think about our day to day and how to like get food on the table or like what we need to do mm-hmm. for the day but we're putting what government's doing in the back of our minds because we're like okay they're doing what they're supposed to do because we don't hear anything on the yeah. news but since it's in our face of four seven, all the time I think we're finally realizing the huge disparities and like this is not what I give you my taxes for mm-hmm. where are my rights and mm-hmm. you, you know like things like that and I think we're finally discussing what the purpose of government is yeah. because historically looking at it I mean like our parents that conversation would make you, like, labeled as someone like of, like, a
1: communist or something, a, like, yeah. that. Or something
4: yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. <Especially It> funny. It <laughs> would
1: get you labeled a communist in an explicitly negative, intentionally yeah, yeah. negative way.
0: Intentionally negative yeah. ostracization would occur, exactly. uh, death threats. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. that's not something that you could live with in like, it wasn't normalized at all. As yeah, it yeah. is, it's like, like, it's like, getting, getting more normalized today to be, mm. consider yourself as a socialist or a communist. And we'll talk about that later. But
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll talk about it later.
3: <laughs> the convergence of ideological thought and the actions of a governance determines what a society will become. Broad ideologies adopted by a nation alone will make no difference if its governance cannot effectively translate those ideals into practice.
2: I am an associate professor of political science, I'm also the chair of the political science department uh, uh, here at IUPUI, Um, been here since 2009. Really focused in on is uh, political psychology, so that's kind of my guiding light, Um, and that leads to a lot of study of voting behavior, and we call it mass political behavior, so uh, it's the behavior of the average citizen, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, how is does that uh, that uh, people relate to politics, engage in it, uh, participate in it, uh, understand it? A lot of it's just simply about trying to understand it, right? So, you know, um, when it comes to ideology, how many people in the country could you even say have an ideology, right? That kind of stuff. It's, uh, political science as, as a field really doesn't come into its own till you know early twentieth century, mid twentieth century, post World War II mm-hmm. uh, kind of time. So, we haven't been around that long, and. Really, even within political science, uh, the adoption of something like political psychology and that kind of study into it has uh, been really, you know, not happened until the last 25 years or so. Um, But I think it's made some great strides, you know. Particularly in trying to understand human beings as they actually are, rather than like an economist might just assume people are. We're gonna let's assume people are this, and then we'll figure out what's going on. Well, people aren't really that, right? And so we want to. For me, anyway, and a lot of people that do this kind of research, we want to understand how things really actually work, right? Uh, um, so a lot of kind of the cutting edge research right now is maybe seems basic, but you know we really need to find evidence for. Is okay? So something like emotion. What? How? How does emotion work uh, in politics? Uh, you know, something like anxiety. Right, and how does that drive people's choices? How does it drive the things that they read, the people they trust, the policies that they might support? Uh, And that's that's kind of research that's really just over the last 10 years that people have really put a lot of work into.
1: Is today's atmosphere of election, constant debate, and collaboration or lack thereof among members of different government parties always been like this? Actually, democratic aspects of our government, like voting, elections, debates, and overall public influence on government action, is a practice of governance only relatively modern when you look at the overall trends of human history.
0: What are, you, what are some key influences that make people want to vote for one candidate over another? Like. Um, in terms of maybe like economy or like job growth or maybe the environment? (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the basics, the partisanship is the single best predictor of people's behavior. Uh, and So this is something that just hasn't gone away. And it's it's not new. I mean, we're more, we might be more polarized right now than we were, say, in the 1970s. Uh, But the very first uh, bits of research that took scientific methods in trying to understand political behavior uh, dating back to the 30s and 40s, the 1930s and 40s, uh, what they found was, oh, partisanship, partisanship that they found they, they, look, they would go to a, you know, Erie County, uh, Ohio, and they would look at people prior to a campaign, talk to them. And they were, in a, you know, they were interested in saying, well, let's see how campaigns work, right? Well, what, what effect is this campaign? People are going to pay attention. They're going to like this person. They're going to switch and that kind of stuff. And what they found was is they could predict what people were going to vote prior to even the campaign really starting. Why? Because they're partisanship. You know, and ultimately, what people do is uh, they tend to just adopt what their uh, you know party says as their own, or you know, to the extent that they pay attention, they even project their own preferences on. So, if I ask a person what do you, uh, what does this candidate stand for, what are policy positions, they'll tend to have you know to project their own onto that person, right? Yeah, 'Cause they and might not, not necessarily
0: know. they said that right. themselves,
2: Exactly. So okay. we love we love to love the people we think love us, and <laughs> so we just go along. <laughs> okay,
0: gotcha. And um, there's this interesting, I don't know where I heard it, but in terms of like political parties and how we're partisan and very true to what we like identify with, do you think that has to do with um, more evolutionary basis of tribalism? Like wanting to stick with a group and like be all and end all like that's what I'm staying with?
2: Yeah oh absolutely uh, uh group influence is huge right in Human psychology uh and that and again I, uh, this goes just back to the, some of the foundations of the research that i work in uh when it comes to something uh like ideology uh there's attempts to try to you know what percentage so this goes back to 1950s uh where uh scholars are you know actually using scientific methods to you know do quality surveys and and what they're finding is is that you know, if we're going to think of an ideology as something where people have a, a coherent set of beliefs, right, and they, they hang together and they're interdependent, mm-hmm. well, you know, with that kind of strict, you know, definition, we probably only have maybe 10% of the country that could ever fall into that kind of thing. There's some, you know, uh, kind of partisans maybe, you know, that'll add another 5%, 6 7%. But still, you know, there's, there's not a lot of people that would be considered to actually have an ideology. And what that research then starts to point to, well, how do people ultimately make their decisions? And a lot of it is group-based, you, know, so, you know, the things that we can point to, like, what is my identity? Who do I identify with? And I'm going to ultimately adopt those positions of the group, right? It's a lot easier to do that than try to understand every public policy on my own. It's just, you know, a, a lot of work for people to do. So we rely on those kind of shortcuts.
0: Yeah. So the identities you look for, I would assume it's like maybe gender, mm-hmm. race,
2: yep. class. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there any others?
2: Well, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, race right nothing. is obviously huge, particularly in the United States, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender becomes one uh, that uh, is something we always, obviously, can control for. In the United States, actually, kind of class doesn't seem to be as important as being on you know, class, kind of, uh, is, is important in other countries. Um, but uh, in the U.S., it's, it doesn't seem, we, we tend to have the political parties right now that are able to cut across that, right? Right. Um, Uh, You know, it's not 100 percent, obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, and so other things that drive people can be things like so my partisanship becomes a big driver because it's like, you know, what does it mean to be a Republican right now? I have to believe this X, Y, Z. Right. And if I don't, I'm a Republican in name only. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, same with Democrats. You know, so we have the kind of this litmus test that we have for individuals as to what it means to be a part of this group. And that becomes very strong right and so my identity as a gun owner might become re- really important to me or as an environmentalist becomes important to me and how i you know choose to uh, a candidate to follow or policies to advocate for
0: yeah definitely okay so cuz of the the poll to groups are really strong and we don't really want to mess up the norms and things like that because people don't have ideologies where are the big waves of like where do revolutions start or like the like the tides changing from like <laughs> Um, Lately, people have been talking about, it's been going on for like, it's had its roots decades ago, but it's really like coming forth now, like in Europe and here, populism, Mm -hmm. having those ideologies rather than more middle of the road thoughts. So what gets people to be more, um, I, I don't know if it's involved or what, but...
2: When we think about populism, obviously this is kind of a generic term that can be applied to a lot of things, and oftentimes it's just about you know a a political leader's ability to connect with a large group of people and kind of offer them salvation, Mm -hmm. you know, in whatever direction like could go right or left really, Uh, and. You know, and so it doesn't oftentimes rely on a lot lot of depth of knowledge, right? It's, you know, I have a very kind of surface argument that I'm giving you uh, and follow me to the promised land. and, and that oftentimes doesn't work out so well because, well, you know, the devil's in the details, right? When it comes to public policy, and so what you're going to do and how you're going to affect this is uh, a challenge. Uh, oftentimes po- populists, you know, don't tend to even win elections, but uh, you know, there does you know, the the movement, you know, that seems to be, you know, you know, covering the globe at this point is is you know is more of a it's a right leaning you know populism. It's heavily uh, uh, focused on uh, no matter what country you're in. It's not just the United States. It's focused on okay let's protect us our borders right yeah, yeah. that's what I think mm-hmm. of. when I
0: think of populism I think immigration like outsiders mm-hmm. us versus them rhetoric is very mm-hmm. strong yeah. there's um, negative it, anything that's negative is because they're right. not from here, right. is what I think.
2: Right. Yeah, and that, I mean that's like this, this is the first time that's ever happened in history. We were happy to blame the other uh, all the time, you know, for as, as humans. Uh, but yeah, but this is, I mean, you know, what are what are the forces that are leading? The, you know, uh, this charge is, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump plays a, a role here, but I don't think he's a cause as much as as a result of this movement, right? He's able to harness. Uh, that kind of feeling, as you know, perhaps no one else has certainly in the United States, um, as kind of the showman that he is, you know, has built up for you know in his career. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I, I think you know people are you know it's insecurity, and it can even go back to political psychology. It's raising of anxiety in individuals. So you know if you're if you're a political party, there can be advantages to raising people's anxiety because if what they're going to do, you know, if anxious people, they seek out certain types of information, and that information is actually the, the the negative kind of anxious kind of information. So they seek out the stuff that you might be offering, and then as you the one who's offering this kind of anxiety type information, you offer a solution to, They trust you, right? So so if you are, uh, say, a Republican party and you want to uh, uh, blame you know, immigrants and say this is gonna border wall is gonna solve this, this is okay, well, immigrants are causing my problems, right, okay, uh, they've diagnosed it, they're offering me a solution, I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it relies heavily on the fact that it's just that People aren't going to spend a lot of time on politics. I mean, yeah. I'm interested in, I spend all the time because it's almost as a hobby. It's been that way my entire life. But for most people, it's probably you know they're not as interested. Public policy is very complicated, and I certainly wouldn't claim that I know everything about public policy. You know, it's just to know one public policy really well is a challenge, much <laughs> less all of them. Uh, you know, so. Uh, it's it's you know, we rely on these types of cues and so when when feelings of anxiousness and fear start to grow in people they look for security and they start they start you know uh supporting Kind of illiberal uh, type policies, meaning that you know we're happy to restrict civil liberties and you know, and rights uh, if we feel it's the name of security. You know? yeah. So if you can push people in that direction, make them scared, make you know build up the fear uh, in them uh, and a- anxiety, they will turn to those types of policies to try and alleviate that concern. Um, yeah, definitely. And it doesn't matter if those policies would actually accomplish the goal, right? right? It, it, it's it, just the mental. It, it's, like it, mm-hmm. I trust them right. and
0: what they say, right. and I don't have the time. Because right. there's. I think um as we get busier, especially now um, there's a lot more barriers to finding information and now that there's the trust factor of not trusting media, right. that's another thing, so you just believe whoever leader you choose mm-hmm. to represent you as fact mm-hmm. and I think that's another
2: right thing. and that that gets into again psychology about you know confirmation bias yeah. uh, you know and the selective attention that we have you know. It, it ultimately, the way we see people is that we're cognitive misers. We, we are not, int- ultimately, we, we, our brains just, in, in any context, this isn't just in politics, our brain wants to build heuristics for, you know, going through life where we right. don't have to uh, expend energy constantly comp- contemplating, well, how am I going to drive to work today? What's going to be my morning routine? You know, those things we often forget. I don't you know, did I drive? I know I'm here. I must have drove to work. <laughs> I don't necessarily remember what happened. It wasn't uneventful, right? So our brains don't even register. Uh, you know, it's... And so we do that in politics too, uh, and you know, so we build these kind of simple heuristics to try and solve the politics par- problem, which is how do I vote? How do I participate? That kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Definitely. Okay. Moving forward, I when I was doing research, I was trying to find just as like a foundation about this knowledge of like political governments, mm-hmm. where like everything started and like in ancient history i learned that like it was so it was tribes at first and then it kind of like got a little bigger and they didn't have like organized government systems and then it kind of skipped to ancient rome or like ancient china where they had the um i wouldn't call it what do they call it
2: we also, thought, you know, point to like Greek city-states and that kind of thing as the yeah. cradle of democracy, yeah. uh, if you can call it that. It was its not like everyone got to participate <laughs> in ancient Greece, um, yeah. but you know, still, it was kind of—it was something different than hereditary, you know, uh, kind of monarchy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it was like, it switched from like monarchy to autocracy, like in China and things like that, and it kind of stayed similar, like either okay. one or the other, for a very long yeah. time, and yeah. then maybe medieval times a lot of feudalism happened which was like a little different than I would say it's like maybe an alt-right to like (laughs) to what they had originally but um so like my point was that it seems like all of our talk of democracy and like these ideas of what we hold really important now we see like government is like what is government government is democracy has only happened Um, in a global scale past World War II. Like, it's
2: very new. Well, it's true, I mean, democracy is, you know, spreading across the globe, uh, post-World War II. I mean, you know, as, uh, you know, in my particular specialty is in in American politics, and so, um, you know, we'd like to point to, you know, and argue that uh, the United States, essentially, is one of the first, you know, with the framers of the Constitution really kind of first. Although, of course, it's all based on, you know, a a lot of uh, uh, the government in uh, uh, the UK, Uh, but, you know, comes to the fore with uh, you know the United States. Uh, I, I would argue, uh, and you know the idea that, that you're going to have you know a large portion. Of course, in the beginning, it was just you know landed you know white men that were allowed to participate. But at least it, it did expand fairly quickly to all uh, white men. And then it took a long, long time. You know, so the question is, when did the United States actually become a democracy? You know, maybe that's not until you know the 1960s. You know, uh, so. Um, Democracy, I would say, active in the world is new. It's, it's, it is new. And maybe this is, we're just going through growing pains.
3: Democracy, a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state, typically th- through elected representatives. It's a political ideology refined by ancient Greece and adopted as a system of governance by the most powerful nations on earth today, including America. The global shift towards democracy didn't begin until the 19th century. According to the Center of Systematic Peace, less than 2% of world population lived in democracy until 1848. Prior to the 1800s, many world powers like England had governments that operated as either oligarchies, which are defined by Britannica.com as government by the few, especially despotic power exercised by a small and privileged group for corrupt or selfish purposes, or autocracies, like in China which is a government in which one person possesses unlimited power. The 20th century was plagued with dictatorships, some of the most infamous being led by Adolf Hitler in Germany, Joseph Stalin of Russia, Benito Mussolini of Italy, and Mao Zedong of China.
1: Today in 2018, 45% of the world's population lives in a democracy, according to FreedomHouse.org. Freedom House also reported, 71 countries suffered net declines in political rights and civil liberties, with only 35 countries registering gains. This marked the 12th consecutive year of declining global freedom. The Washington Post released a study on global trends in government democracy and found one third of the world's population or 2.5 billion people have lived through autocratization in which a leader or group of leaders began to limit those democratic attributes and to rule more unilaterally. The current autocratization trend is visible across the world. Only Sub-Saharan Africa shows some democratic improvements on average. And for the first time since 1979, the same number of countries, 24 in total, are backsliding on democracy as are advancing. Only 15% of the world's population lives in countries where everyone, regardless of gender or socioeconomic status, has roughly equal access to political power.
3: To many scholars that research the topic, the net decline of democracy is troubling. But as a political system, does a democratic system best serve the interests of its citizens? Socialism and Communism are also distinct political ideologies that have shaped our modern world. Which out of the three manifests the ideal society for its citizens, not simply in concept, but in practice?
0: which political system, in your guys' opinion, democracy, Communism, or Socialism is the best form of government for its
1: people?
4: You wanna take this one (laughs) off? Sure, uh, I'll give you a little. So, I'm totally a non-sectarian Communist, uh, I believe. Uh, I want to actually... Let me give a little bit of a definition of what I see as communist because I can't say I'm a communist because you won't understand what I mean by that. Okay. That's something that Michael Parenti actually said. You know, he was on... he's a Marxist, Italian, American intellectual. He went on national TV and said, I want to identify as a Marxist because you won't understand me. So um, I'm actually going to use a definition from one of the most important thinkers in my mind of this era, uh, Vijay Prashad. He's an Indian-American uh, Marxist intellectual. And he said socialism is... And I'm using socialism and communism interchangeably. I'm everything. I'm an anarchist. I'm a Marxist. Whatever you want to say, I'm a part of it. I'm just left. Uh, So uh, his definition is essentially this idea that socialism takes into consideration two things which basically impact how we live our everyday lives. The first thing is material constraints. You know, what resources do you have in your society that you are able to use? What resources are near in your society that you can trade for and develop, you know, and and have different products? Uh, What is in your society that you're able to proliferate and how can you use those things? The second part of that is human possibility. Uh, human possibility is what you know who who are we as people and what can we do with the resources that we have mm-hmm. and if you take these two things into consideration I think only actually socialism takes these two things in consideration in a capitalist society in a liberal society you basically have this idea that you know you are not a part of the greater circles of accumulation in the sense that you aren't a part of the people that are making the decisions on the resources mm-hmm. yeah. you are the you are just part of the process you lose your humanity in that way you become alienated from your labor in that way because you you're not making any decision. You're not giving any input into this product, this iPhone that you're slaving away in, you know, some sweatshop in Vietnam. You don't have any, you know, you're not proud of what you're creating. In fact, the work is degrading you. I think socialism takes into serious consideration what do humans, what are human beings meant to do? So, and I think the only real thing that makes sense to me in that aspect, in taking those ideas of material constraints and human possibility, is socialism. So,
1: yeah, I am a lot like all metalness. I'm. Left. (laughs) It's hard to say I'm a communist, I'm a socialist, I'm an anarchist, or I'm anti-capitalist. Whatever it is, I'm probably behind it. I probably agree with it. So I think that it's the only moral decision to make Mm. is to follow a communist structure. And I'm using communist and socialism interchangeably Mm. here as well. Mm. I think that it's the only moral choice and it's the moral imperative that we have to choose. Mm. Because any form of capitalistic society relies on the dehumanization right. of people. Right. There's not a form of capitalism that exists where you can be a fully realized person is right. more than a wage Somebody slave. Has to lose. Exactly. It is a zero-sum game. Somebody
4: has to get exploited.
1: Exactly. And overwhelmingly it will be the minority. Right. It will be the Always. token other. Right. And it comes back to what Freire says about mm. dehumanization. Mm. When people are dehumanized it's a constant struggle to reach personhood. Mm. And that goes for any oppressed mm person. It is a struggle to reach personhood. The oppressor is also dehumanized in that situation, but obviously right, right. in a different way. Right, right. But I think that it's so important to take into account that there there is no humanization under capitalism. People will always be processes right. under capitalism. So that's how I because, come to this. Yeah,
4: your worth in capitalist society is dependent on how much money you make. Fundamentally, exactly. I mean, you can't get mental health care in this country unless you're you're rich and you aspire yeah. to the ideals of capital. Yeah. I can't go and be loved by my society. That's a big thing for me. Receiving healthcare is being loved by your society. Yes. Yeah. I can't receive that because I don't have enough money. I mean, what kind of logic is that? Why don't we develop a wage system in which when we receive our paychecks, we give a little bit of money back to the state, have the state redistribute that money into hospitals, into yes. public works, into public transportation, and then we can literally have a tangible feeling that we are living together because we all paid for this. We all paid for the train ride to campus. We all pay for somebody to go in and get treatment at a health facility. Mm-hmm. That's tangible love. Yes. I want to call that tangible love because that's not something you have in a capitalist society. People who see a hospital now, they have, God, I hope I never end up there. hope ne- nothing oh. ever happens to me that I have to be taken care of with these people. Yes. You know, it's something, it's a really immoral way to live. And I also really liked your point about um, oppressed people and being able, like when you are, when your humanity is ripped away from you, mm-hmm. it's a constant fight to take it back. That's to me socialism. Yes. The fight is socialism. The exploitation is capitalism. Because the way that I envision a communist society to look like, is, you know, you have a state that's committed entirely, you have a government that's committed entirely to launching struggles against bigotry in every form. You know, I don't think that just if you have a revolution and you have a communist society, that tomorrow you wake up and everything's great. No, that's when the work begins. But you will be, your state, your government, will believe in those principles. And they will use that, I think, national sentiment, you know, that peoplehood in order to launch struggles so that you can achieve what you want, which is to be a human being, to be an actualized person.
0: Yeah definitely. yeah, definitely. I think in concept. concept, socialism sounds great. It's to share resources of everybody. and It's like equal production, uh, the production of a uh, a nation or whatever. Everybody has their, their peace and their property. Um, actually, property is not. It's like everybody has, like it's all shared. Yeah. So in that contrast to capitalism, so it's like me, myself and I, what I make myself is mine. And I think the problem with socialism and communism is that it devolves into so if we all have these resources and everybody doesn't own anything and it's like all shared, then there's going to be a a governing body that's going to have control over it anyway because it has to distribute these resources. Groups do not distribute these resources equally because that's human nature to be selfish. And then Frederick Hayek, um, he's a very well like a very prolific political theorist and like his. His uh, study was primarily in economics. He had this uh, book called The Road to Serfdom. And basically, looking at the history of ancient civilization and political systems, it makes sense because, I mean, no matter where you start, so let's start at um, where we're at right now, capitalism. America is a capitalistic society. And because people are fed up with the capitalistic society and having unequal the inequality of it all in terms of like their money, their well-being, the quality of life between people at the bottom, middle class and the el- elitists, people lean toward more leftists and they go to socialism. So they get rid of the aspect of, I don't want to have property, I want everybody to have their own property, like everybody to mm-hmm. share resources. So it goes from capitalism to socialism. And then from socialism, it divulges into communism because communism will create this uh, vacuum of power because someone needs to distribute these resources. Mm -hmm. And then the communistic nature of things is everything state-owned. So it goes from people-owned to state-owned. And that's a very um, oligarch society of like only a handful of people have the power. And from communism, we get back to where we started from that goes, um, goes down into serfdom, which is if the state owns everything, you have to get on the state's good side. And to get on the state's good side and get to their rights and their properties, um, you can be something like in feudalism, back in the old medieval times, people who owned property were usually the knights, kings, royalty, and you lived on their property and you worked for them in order to be a part of their, their products. So, honestly, I think it's a vicious cycle. So-
3: I kind of disagree with like this idea that like people that it can't work because people are naturally like selfish, mm-hmm. because if you like I think that's more of a Westernized or like Americanized idea like considering like we are an individualistic culture versus in a collectivist of culture mm-hmm. people people aren't usually as selfish because they were raised mm-hmm. to know to you know like everybody's in this together. Um, so I think that that's that the idea that we are selfish and that um, you know Just our values of being an individualistic society is something that makes us feel like Communism could not work, and it's also something that goes against the current you know um, way that things are So of course there's going to be uh, talk about how it won't work, you know for coming from the government So I don't know I'm that's kind true. of torn be- mm-hmm. by it But also I think that it depends on the specific culture, and I think yeah. that it is possible but right now america is not there
0: communism has never worked there's never been a form of government that has identified as socialist or communist that hasn't divulged into a dictatorship an autocracy and then eventually just so, collapsed upon itself I'm,
4: I'm gonna i'm gonna push back on that because it's it's untrue to say communism has never worked i mean you gotta look at the chinese example the world bank which is like by all means a capitalist you know institution doesn't exactly provide any frameworks on global development that are outside of this neoliberal, you should just work in a sweatshop, you know, model. Even they had to admit that China did something incredible. You know, they lifted, and this is their statistic, 500 million people out of poverty. What is the population of the United States? 300 million? Hey, you know, they added 200 million more, I said all of you get out of poverty. You know, that's something incredible. And that would not have been possible if there was not a strong public sector. Because that strong public sector decided that there will be no more corruption in the revolutionary period. And we are gonna repossess the wealth from the people, from the oligarchs, from the feudal lords, from you know the rich religious uh, uh, class of people. And we're gonna take that money and we're gonna invest in schools, in hospitals, in literacy campaigns. That's my biggest thing. Because what the Chinese did, if you look at the uh, UNICEF statistics, China has a 96% literacy rate. That's incredible, and you got to. That. That's it's. I know. I mean, people, you wouldn't understand that if you, you know, if you don't realize, if you don't try to understand the perspective of the communists. Yes. Too often, we look at communist history and we remove the communism from it. We just say you're authoritarian, you're this. No, it's more complicated than those buzzwords. And the way that I see it is, the fact that the Chinese were committed to making sure there was literacy. That's something to say, because it is humiliating. And I come from, you know, a country that has been super exploited by colonialism. My family's from Pakistan. I, I see it. I mean, I know people. I mean, I don't know people. Let me rephrase that. But it's humiliating not being able to read, because then your exploitation is limitless. You are unable for yourself to decide the rules of the game, because you can't read. So in a country like India, which has followed a, pure, you know, a very strong capitalist form of development, a neoliberal form of development, 38% of the population cannot read. You know, that's a, you know, 380 million people cannot read. Mm-hmm. That's just humiliating. And that's backwardedness. To me, capitalism reinforces the backwardness of colonialism. It reinforces the backwardness of slavery in this country, of the attempted extermination of native people. I want to say attempted, it wasn't successful. Natives are still here. Um, but it reinforces those bigotries. And I feel like the only thing that can correct it is socialism. That is its antidote. Um, and the idea that it's never worked, I think, comes from a misreading of communist history. Uh, communism, as Marx predicted, it would never happen in a peasant society. It would happen in an urban society, in an urban a, a class that was a country that was mainly composed of the urban working class, the proletariat. Never expected that these you know countries were mainly their farm dwellers would have a revolution overthrow the government and form a state. Um, and that's because those societies that are peasant societies are extremely underdeveloped. They don't have industrialization in the same way that countries that are primarily urban do. Um, and because they didn't have that, they were starting from the ground up. So obviously there were problems. You didn't have any capital to begin with. You didn't have anything to redistribute. So a lot of the times socialism ended up being a socialism of poverty because they're nationalizing before they have the ability to create robust institutions. The Chinese did something incredible. I have to say, and especially when you compare China to a country like India, similar populations uh, and similar times of independence, you kind of really see um, the differences in between a, a, a communist development strategy and a, and a capitalist development strategy. Yeah, I would
1: to. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I think it comes back to this idea
2: that. I mean, it, it's it's an open question as to it, like what proportion you know of people would. Uh, you know, young people or you know or age cohort or, would be supportive of socialist uh, policies or not. Um, right. I mean, it's not like it's, it's the first time this has happened. You had uh, you know some you know, concerted efforts to say in the '60s and that kind of thing towards mm-hmm. pushes towards some of these ideals. I mean, but the reality is, is so that we have we, there's there's the theory and the philosophy of you know how governance work uh, and you know kind of the, the socialist kind of thought process, right? right. And then there's the practice you know and it's it's essentially the practice right that's never doesn't seem to have worked at least in name you know what what seems to have worked has been you know the kind of the model that we've maybe we see in Europe which is this kind of democratic socialism uh... which is we we Main, we maintain the institutions of voting, you know, and representation and that kind of and thing. Property, like right, you know. right, yeah, right. you know, independent, you know, private property and, you know, still, you know, a uh, capitalist, ultimately capitalist system. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's circumscribed in, in some certain way. So in particular with, uh, uh, you know, particularly in Scandinavian countries with, large portions of of say the middle class of, of the country's actual populace have bought into the idea that government is going to be something that's going to help uh you know provide uh certain benefits to us as a society. You know Mm -hmm. the government is us. The government's not something else out there, right? It's us uh in a democracy. And the idea is that we we can provide, you know, health care uh for people, you know, uh, just because you're a citizen, you know, you are one of us and so everyone gets you don't have to earn it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can uh do certain things, we can use the power that we have as a collective uh, uh to you know to somewhat check the power of in, you know private corporations that can become mega corporations international corporations right? right uh and so you know by using the collective power of all of us together to counterbalance that you know the examples are particular in the healthcare system you know when it comes to you know uh pharmaceutical prices like in the United States right now we don't really properly leverage uh, the power that we have of the you know 300 million citizens who need these products, but right now we we, we you know because we have this collective action power, we're not working together except in certain contexts. You know, uh, you know Medicare they use that power of their, the fact that they have you know millions of subscribers to say no, we're only, you know if you're going to go through uh, Medicare, we're only going to pay this kind of price. And so that's what they do in other countries, right? They say, well, we are going to work as, you know, we're going to, you're essentially going to, uh, uh, what a single payer system or something like that would be is that you aren't going to be able to separate us out and charge this person over here one price, that person over there one price, and, and, you know, and everyone's kind of on their own to fight you. Well, one person can't fight for, you know, Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly's got a lot more power than me personally, but if Eli Lilly has to deal with the United States government and there's only one essentially buyer for their product, all of a sudden there's a lot of leverage for the, the consumer. The consumer gets their leverage. So... You know, to me, you know, if we're thinking about socialist ideas, it, it's you know the successes. We can we can talk about the disasters, right? Which seems to be well, well, every time it's been seriously tried, those countries don't seem to stick around for very long, or they don't. They don't look like what we would dream uh, socialism on the society right. would practice, look like. They're totally right, off the mark. right, and so, it, but where the successes have come, it, it's really happened in in these kind of uh, European countries in particular that have been able to adopt some of these ideas that there is we as a collective in our society uh, uh, should work together. You know, in a lot of these contexts, you know, not in everything, and they do it within, you know, when it comes to jobs too, and uh, uh, that kind of thing, and whether or not uh, some corporations, uh, uh, you know, that are particularly large, will actually have some government kind of, you know, connection, where if you're going to close a factory, you have to work with the government, and you know, the government essentially, you know, representing the people, uh, and what you're going to do, and you know, the kind of the costs, and you know, that's going to happen, and how you would, you know, move these kind of employees around. I think that's where we would probably have, if we want to be successful, that has to be the model. You know yes. how, you know, it's it can't be. You know, um, what well, just recently, I forget who it was, a billionaire was complaining about what exactly what you're saying. You know, these young kids, these millennials, they are, they're all, you know, uh, falling for this communist idea. Well, let me, uh, I'll put them on my private plane and take them to Venezuela. Right. Uh, and well, you know, nothing goods really happening in Venezuela right now. And OK, I understand his point, but he didn't offer to, to uh, hop on his uh, private plane and take him to Appalachia, you know, yeah. in West Virginia. You know? And so the failures of. The failures uh, of both governments uh, of, are very apparent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and so there is tremendous poverty and deep poverty in the United States uh, and people struggling, you know, you know, terribly. Uh, uh, you know, because of you know societal movements, uh, government choices. Yes, in some ways, and, and a lot of private industry, young kind of choices too, that leave people high and dry, uh, yeah. and poison them and kill them with uh, you know pollution.
1: Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, both professors of government at Harvard University, wrote in their co pinned opinion piece titled "This Is How Democracies Die." Since the end of the Cold War, most democratic breakdowns have been caused not by generals and soldiers, but by elected governments themselves. Since the end of the Cold War, most democratic breakdowns have been caused not by generals and soldiers, but by elected governments themselves. Democratic backsliding today begins at the ballot box. The electoral road to breakdown is dangerously deceptive. With the classic coup d'etat, as in Pinochet's Chile, the death of a democracy is immediate and evident to all. The presidential palace burns. The president is killed, imprisoned, or shipped off into exile. On the electoral road, none of these things happen. There are no tanks in the streets constitutions and other nominally democratic institutions remain in place. People still vote. Elected autocrats maintain a veneer of democracy while eviscerating its substance. So where do we go from here?
3: Thank
0: you. So why do we believe now that communism and socialism isn't as bad as we've been taught?
4: Good, Great question. Are we recording? Yeah.
3: So I think it has a lot to do with, like, this idea that people are becoming, like, more free thinkers, right? And, like, which is, like, this kind of fake idea that I don't really believe in because, like... <laughs> no, honestly, like, if you think about it... It has to do with the fake idea. I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but, like, if you think about it, like, if you're being told that you're a free thinker, if you can, like, express that you're a free thinker, you're probably not because, like, you shouldn't have... Like, true freedom isn't something that you you can, like, be told that mm-hmm. it exists whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think... People are realizing, like, as history continues to repeat itself, that the way that things are aren't the way that they have to be. And, like, w- again, we're like, we're a really young country and it has a lot to do with, like, the history that we're being taught and, like, the realization that, like, history is only being taught told by the people who win. Mm-hmm. So we're getting, getting, getting get, being given a really one-sided view of what things work and what things don't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, Post-World War II since the democracy side of World War II is like they basically made it in the history books They made it um, a war of ideas. Mm -hmm. So communism versus the democracy like of the West UK versus Japan and um, Hitler and everything like that But since I mean it's not it's not true that like it defeated all communism or defeated all socialism Didn't kill the idea might have shot the messenger but Mm -hmm. the message still lives on. Yeah. Um, Even up until recently, like Fidel Castro and things like that. So um, what's the draw? Like, um, I mean, we can't... Ideology-wise, I think I'm not for um, the historical things of what... In practice, I'm not for communism and socialism. I like their concepts. And for democracy, they don't work any better. So I think the the best government for the people is yet to be found. Mm -hmm. Um, What, um, fuck, I I lost my train of thought.
1: Well, if I can jump in real quick. Yeah, You said, um, why is it having such resurgence, essentially, was Mm -hmm. one of your questions. Yeah. And I, please stop me if I go on too distant of a tangent. Yeah, for sure. But here's the thing, like, all of us sitting in this room are millennials slash Gen Z. Yeah. And we grew up with parents, dominantly Gen X, probably, Mm -hmm who truly and wholeheartedly believed that something was going to happen to make our lives better than theirs were. Mm-hmm. And it never came. Mm-hmm. We have a lower life expectancy than our parents. Mm-hmm. We have worse off economic features. We're the first generation that is projected to do worse than the generation preceding us. So the American dream is dead. It is. And with the crowdsourcing of information, so social media and the internet, mm-hmm. people are no longer complacent with what we've been given. Mm. People it's become a shared in joke of a meme among people of our generation that We live in a society? Yes, <laughs> we live in society. <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> like it becomes a joke because we're so yeah. fed up with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. We have reached a point in our cultural consciousness of this generation where we can no longer stand these ideas that were imparted on yeah.
3: us. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I think if I can interject I think a lot of that has to do with like a lot of Millennials and Gen Z were kind of like coddled in a way you know what I mean like we're that generation of like like you get the like prize just for participating right yeah but then <laughs> when things in our society do happen we're just kind of taken it back and we're like well fuck like somebody lied like yeah yeah so I think like there's this resurgence of like well you know anything can happen like maybe this isn't right yeah. like for example, we've been taught that, you know, like everybody's like equal in this country, right? But Native Americans in North Dakota just lost the right to vote. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. Things are happening and we're, oh, yeah. just, we're seeing it happen. So I think that we're also realizing that things aren't set in stone and things can change.
0: People think democracy is broken because of their voices not being heard in terms of like the capitalism aspect being bigger than um, individual rights? and What's for the people?
2: I mean, I I can sympathize to that. um, It's uh, the corporate influence on public policy is real. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is no doubt about that, that uh, money matters in politics Mm -hmm. uh, in every way. Uh, and the people whose voices are, you know, in Congress, you know, you know we th- we think about uh, participation in democracy through voting, and oftentimes we forget about anything else. Well, the reality is, this policy is made, you know, in a Congress or in a state legislature or wherever, uh, and those people aren't doing it in a vacuum. They're talking to people, and who are they talking to? Well, they talk to people who have the ability, and oftentimes ability is connected with money, uh, uh, to actually advocate for themselves. And so, who has that money? Well, it's not me uh, who has that money. It's corporate in particular, and wealthy individuals. And so there's a long string of research on, on organized interests. And this, go, it's a, this goes back, uh, you know, 50 to 60 years. And, you know, right from the very beginning, you know, the argument has been that You know, if uh, our society and policy is made in, you know, Washington, D.C., you know, through and lobbying has significant influence, well, the problem is, is that there's a heavily bias uh, uh, to that, the voice that's being heard. Mm -hmm. And that's been, that was the case 50 years ago, and it's the case today. Uh, So that the moneyed interest are, are, their interests are represented. They're there, you know, so a big corporation, they'll set up their own shop in Washington doing it, they'll hire their own lobbies, but they don't stop there. They'll also hire other firms that exist, you know, to lobby on. Their behalf, and oftentimes whatever industry they're part of will also have an industry organization that's lobbying mm-hmm. on their behalf, and so it, they have all kinds of wings, you know, there that yeah. are talking to people. The resources
0: are just—it's
2: you know, almost unlimited. Yeah, it's unlimited case. resources mm-hmm.
0: as opposed to someone maybe. So it's if you think about it in like a a practical sense, like there's the healthcare industry lobbying for itself, mm-hmm. billions, billions of dollars just for like one company, but then mm-hmm. a person that's on the other end of receiving end of like I want my pills to be affordable because. I can't like I can't go against Eli Lilly like you said. Mm-hmm. So there's a very big power struggle, yeah. and I I think that's one of like this is like our final like um, wrapping up like our final phase is Like what would what's going to define like this era in America? I think would be one is like private interest versus corporate interest because there was a I'm not sure what the case was, but um, the court system ruled that. Corporations
2: are people, and they have rights. Like- right. I mean, it, it's. I mean, that's been part of uh, uh, you know case law for uh, in lots of different contexts to mm-hmm. ultimately treat uh, uh, businesses as if they're individuals. In a lot of ways, yeah. uh, it's been extended right in, in the political arena uh, uh, considerably recently uh, with the ability of corporations. They can't donate directly to a, a, a campaign, mm-hmm. but they can set up and you know uh, a secondary organization, see you know, uh, uh, five ones, you know. Uh, three Cs organizations and these type of things and donate and use actual corporate dollars and donate to these types of uh, 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 non you know campaign direct you know, individual campaigns and so who has that money? Well it's not me uh, who has that money it's corporations in particular and wealthy individuals. and so there's a long string of research on, on organized interests and this go, a, this goes back uh, you know 50 to 60 years. And you know, right from the very beginning, you know, the argument has been that you know, if uh, our society you know, and policy is made in you know Washington D.C., you know, through and lobbying has significant influence. Well, the problem is, is that there's a heavily bias uh, uh, to that the voice that's being heard, mm-hmm. and that's been that was the case 50 years ago, and it's the case today. Uh, yeah. you know, so that the moneyed interests, or ha- their interests are represented. They are there. You know, so a big corporation, they'll set up their own shop in Washington, doing it. They'll hire their own lobbies. But they don't stop there. They'll also hire other firms that exist, that, you know, to lobby in on their behalf. And oftentimes, whatever industry they're part of will also have an industry organization that's lobbying on their behalf. And so, it, they have all kinds of wings, you know, there that yeah. are talking to people. The resources are just it's almost unlimited. Yeah, it's case. unlimited resources <clears throat>
0: as opposed to someone maybe. So it's if you think about it in like a a practical sense, like there's the healthcare industry lobbying for itself, mm-hmm. billions billions of dollars just for like one company. But mm-hmm. then a person that's on the other end of receiving end of like, I want my pills to be affordable because I can't, like I can't go against Eli Lilly, like you said. Mm-hmm. So there's a very big power struggle. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of like, this is like our final, like um, wrapping up, like our final phase is like what would, what's gonna define like this era in America, I think would be one is like private interest versus corporate interest, because there was, a, am not sure what the case was, but, um, the court system ruled that corporations are people and they have rights. Like-
2: right. I mean, it, it's. I mean, that's been part of uh, uh, you know case law for uh, in lots of different contexts to mm-hmm. ultimately treat uh, uh, businesses as if they're individuals in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, it's been extended right in, in the political arena uh, uh, considerably recently uh, with the ability of corporations. They can't donate directly to a, a, a campaign, mm-hmm. but they can set up and you know a, a secondary organization, see you know, uh, uh, five ones. You know, 3Cs, uh, organizations and these type of things and donate and use actual corporate dollars and donate to these types of uh, 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 non-campaign you know, direct, you know, individual campaign you know, type of, uh, yeah. so uh, efforts. So putting a middleman between the company and the... The idea, you know, the, at least with the Supreme Court is going to argue in that, is going to say that the idea is that there's still a separation, right? It's not, you know, the corporation going to spend with their big bag of money and, and buy the, the candidate. They can't go directly. They'd have to do it indirectly, you know, and yeah. so there's this, this little barrier here, right? Even though you're the organization that might be doing its independent kind of uh, uh, advocacy uh, might be housed in the exact same building yeah. <laughs> even on the same floor and oftentimes is staffed uh, and run by people who had you know have strong connections with the, the original but they supposedly they're they're independent um, I mean that, that you know that's that. What can you do? I mean, the Supreme Court has 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 been in uh, what it is, and now we have uh, a new a couple of new Supreme Court uh, justices that have or certainly have no interest and want not uh, change that. So, and they're fairly young. So. A- unless uh, we change the rules of how our system works, you know, uh, um, it doesn't seem like those type of uh, uh, policies or, you know, court decisions will, will change in our life, in my lifetime. Maybe yours, uh, but it's going to be a while. I mean, you got 20, 30 years of this court at this point. Uh, yeah. The people that are old are probably going to be the liberals on the, uh, that uh, disappear. Um, but so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, you, know, you know, of course, one of the, the sad things, you know, right, so corporations can have the right to, uh, you know, participate as individuals, but they don't ever get any of the, uh, you know, the penalties of individuals, right? You know, you can't throw a corporation right. into jail. There's, there's <laughs> definitely a cushion. <laughs> they're going to take, you know, throw that megacorp into jail because they don't, you know, they did something wrong. Because how many you know, corporations, they can pollute and they kill and they've been convicted of having done these things, but they, right. they still but exist. but they get bail out. They don't suffer.
0: Um, yeah. OK. So um, in terms of like private company interests, that's one big thing I think we're dealing with um, in our lifetime. What would you say, like something on your mind that people that will that will define this era of like American politics, looking back?
2: Well, to me, I mean, you just have to. I mean, Trump all is just so all consuming. I, I just I'm I how do, I I'm just curious, how will people 50 years from now? see him. Will it just disappear? I mean, there are, you know, there are plenty of examples in history where there's been these kind of famous people have existed. We don't know anything about them. We have no idea. You know, and yet they were like these most, right, at the time they were the most famous people in the world. You know, so you wonder. I mean, you know, could that happen? I mean, he's president. I mean, he's he's been famous for his whole life. And my guess, is if he doesn't become president, he'll disappear into history, and no one would ever remember him. But now he's been, he's president, and yeah. he's and he's caused kind of he's done quite a bit uh, to the extent that he could. Uh, you know, and so you know, is this? You know, I would like to believe this is kind of the last you know hurrah for you know kind of this, you know. W- this movement to anger and just uh, you know the hatred of the other right that is you know based on just blind fear uh, you know that comes you know from yeah. total ignorance right yes. uh, and you know that I would like to believe this and I'm not sure you know given human uh, <laughs> human society throughout history that this is something this is the last throws, where you know it's the last you know just you know primal scream from uh, angry individuals mm-hmm. that uh, ultimately you got you're done we're gonna move on that was terrible. <laughs> This didn't accomplish yeah, anything, let's not do that again. <laughs> right? I would like to believe that this is it, and then we're gonna, move, you know, our society, maybe the whole world, right, is having their last moment. Um, that'd be great. You know, yeah, that, that's my, peak. that's the optimist of me. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, this is gonna be it, and so then history would look back and say, man, that was a really weird era where they were just, you know, uh, throwing fits. <laughs>
1: Hmm. What's the future <coughs> of America look like? And like from your guys' point of
0: view, what do you think what do you think this country will look like?
4: So also, I don't know if I'm very excited about the fact that we have more diversity in our election cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, at times, diversity ends at diversity. You have, you know, this kind of diverse, you know, Congress, it's great, that's it. We did it, guys. We have representation. I mean, exactly. come on. When those people go and get homogenized into the institutions and they practice the same policies that, you know, their white counterparts did, mm-hmm. we've lost something, yeah. you know, and we've yeah. sold ourselves. Right, that's the, well, that's yeah. the reality. So The
0: majority of white women voted for Trump. Honestly, hmm. I, I, that's why I don't feel like it, we're really making progress. I think the progress, like, people are touting and things like that just because a woman's white and she wins an election. it Why is that such a milestone? Exactly.
1: It's not anymore. It we used to be, be able to rely on... There was never truly a point where we could rely on women to do what's in the best interest of minority groups, but there was a time where we believed that was possible. Right.
4: Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I mean, it's, it was hard to see so many people's hopes get up. Mm-hmm. That's and I get it, glass ceiling, there's something there, but where are those shards falling? I mean, you know, when you look at the Democratic Party, I mean, and there's somehow like the alternative to what we currently have. That's sad. Yeah, that's, that's really not an sad. At it's all. scary. I mean, they, these guys are, you know, war hungry. They're police. They're prison hungry. Mm. I mean, all of the above. They might be good on some social issues. Maybe they're better on the Supreme Court. I don't think you can get worse on the Supreme Court at this point. But yeah, I mean, like, not. but there's more to that. So to me, the situation is bleak. Um, there was a book, a pamphlet, more response by uh, a okay. former. Uh, deceased now uh, 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 German Marxist called um, Rosa Luxemburg and Luxemburg she wrote a piece called uh, reform or revolution and she was talking about you know how does communism actualize what does it look like uh, in the transitional periods and she said look the choice that we're faced with in Germany this is pre-World War Two Germany the choice that we're faced with are socialism or barbarism barbarism being fascism and she was correct because and the German people chose the fascistic route. American people today, I mean, is the situation so different? I mean, the Democratic Party, the Republicans, they don't have a solution to mm-hmm. handle endemic joblessness. Sorry to say. I mean, I believe that you should vote. I believe you should get there. But understand that you got to put pressure on your people after you elect them into the office because right now there's no strategy for jobs. And because Trump had the most radical... Let's say proposition mm-hmm. to fill in the job gap. He basically blamed it all on you know immigrants and people of color and you know this kinds of things. This kind of Nazi rhetoric. He was able to capture the vote. The left didn't come up with a serious solution. You had Bernie, you know, mm-hmm. even but that was one individual who had a movement. Who had I guess people who followed him still wasn't strong enough to take on. And there are people
0: on. running on the socialist ticket uh, now. Yeah. Which I mean they've done it before, but it's more like supported by the public. And there's like yeah. different forms of socialist people. In parties, and one of them is a revolutionary socialist that believes that there's no the changes we need to our system are not going to happen through the processes we have in government. Like mm-hmm. let's pass a law after law, let's wait, let's use the system. Revolutionary socialists believe that the only way to amount to any change is to just overthrow and throw away the system entirely mm-hmm. and start from scratch. And I think America's future holds the revolutionary aspect. I don't know if it's gonna be communistic or socialistic, or we're just gonna like try to make another constitution based on democracy. But um, I
3: think it's definitely
0: gonna be revolutionary. Mm-hmm.
3: I think I think America right now is too capitalistic and too money hungry in order to, mm. not to go anywhere else because we don't know anything else. And with people being on the socialistic ticket or people, you know, running on different parties. I don't know just because you have that representation doesn't mm. mean that we'll, you know, see change. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like now, you know, we still have a split party system like we're constantly neck and neck
4: with the the next party you know what I mean we honestly gotta build power on the streets I mean it's really time to redefine what we see politics as and participatory participatory, uh, uh, democracy as I mean I never actually I mean I come from an immigrant family nobody votes in an immigrant family I'm gonna try to vote I ain't going to make any promises. I'm going to seriously make an effort. But, I mean... He's not going to vote. Now now I'm just like, wait, what was my point? Now I've made it the whole thing about voting. Um, But, you know, when you come from an immigrant family, you don't have that much confidence in the political system because you never feel like it's for you. And that's a real concern. So, you know, for me, really looking at it, I honestly, I want to try to vote. I don't put my hopes in that ballot. You know, I don't put hopes in a politician that works for the most oppressive government in the world. You know, I really believe that you gotta meet other people. You gotta, you know, do little things like, you know, have a smoke break with somebody, have a coffee with somebody, have lunch with somebody, get to know somebody a little bit more. Because if you know somebody a little bit more, you might feel like, look, we can elevate the conversation. We can talk about how I feel when I walk down the street and people try to move away from me because they're scared of me. You know, it's it's, it's really about whether or not we can talk with one another sensitively and not, you know, feel as if we're embarrassed to talk about those kinds of things.
0: thanks for listening to we the people in crisis we'd like your input on what was discussed today where do you see american politics heading does it look socialist communist or more of the same let us know on our facebook and twitter our information is in the description of this episode no matter how our country's politics play out remember this we are all people the government is meant to service we the people And the sooner we discuss what matters in our community and see past the labels of red and blue, the sooner we'll have a truly United State, facilitating freedom for all Americans. Change starts by listening.